folks, let's uh, let's come and get started. I uh, I just want to you know announce that that the weather we've had the past few weeks is exactly why I try to get this done by the end of April. You know, because it is it's hard. And today, you know, I think you need to pray for yourself and you need to pray for me because this is a really abstract lesson and it is absolutely gorgeous outside and the room's kind of hot. So we're going to have to really focus for me to be clear, for you to get what I'm being clear about, and for us all to stay in here uh, without play acting, you know, to look sincere. So anyway, we'll give it a shot. So with that, fortunately, we've got a good devotional leading off. So Meredith, you're on. Hi, I'm Meredith Mathis, and I'm leading the devotion tonight. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, in reading the letters of Paul, I can't help but wonder what Paul would think of our society's constant stimulation through use of technology. By the time my alarm goes off in the morning, I've already received text messages from my friends who suffer from insomnia, a slew of unsolicited emails from companies that want to make my life better, by selling me products that will save me money, make me healthier, make me younger looking, smarter, and more efficient. Emergency news alerts about the coronavirus, whether masks are effective and how to properly use antibacterial gels, and emails from coworkers who either worked really late or got up really early. This is before even making it to the kitchen to have a first cup of coffee. If my heart desires, I can watch five seasons of my favorite show in one sitting with no commercials. I can buy something online, and it can be at my doorstep as quickly as I want to pay for it. Basically, overstimulation and instant gratification all the time. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul makes an urgent appeal to the Romans and states, Besides this, you know what time it is how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. Basically, a call to wake up from whatever is consuming our attention. He then states at verse 14, Instead, of, instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Maybe this is a call to wake up and to listen, making time for reflection to discern God's will in our lives. I really need to work on this, having enough self-discipline to make time, be still, and listen. In Romans 12, verse 2, Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Based in part on Romans 12, verse 2, Sarah Young, author of Jesus Calling, wrote the following daily devotion. And this is Sarah Young. Some of you probably have this book. Be still in my presence, even though countless tasks clamor for your attention. Nothing is as important as spending time with me. While you wait in my presence, I do my best work within you, transforming you by the renewing of your mind. If you skimp on this time with me, You may plunge headlong into the wrong activities, missing the richness of what I have planned for you. Please pray with me. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to gather today to discuss the scripture and how it can be applied in our daily lives. Please give us the strength to be still so that we can discern your will in our lives. Amen.
Okay. Um, today, we, in, in a way, we turn a corner because we have the, the second half of Romans, which I think is, is sometimes even more complex and challenging than the first half. And then we go um, to some easier letters next week. And with the exception, on, on the remainder of the class, with the exception of uh, Hebrews, which is always a little bit hard, um, and then Revelation, which is at the end, we're, we've pretty much got some smooth sailing here, or some pleasant sailing to the end. I like the, I like the pastoral epistles that are coming up, even though there's a lot in there about women that we have to work through that's not particularly uh, positive. Amy, you're frowning again. I know you've heard this before, <laughs> but there's some really good gems in there which you just have to kind of look beyond the the uh, the stuff that isn't so good. But anyway, with that. Um, I'm going to try to follow this worksheet, uh, and, and I've cut some of it out. But but this is to uh, this is to in in chapters nine to eleven, uh, Paul begins to discuss the role of Judaism within Christianity, and of Christianity within Judaism, and he does that because again, just by way of memory, Paul was nurtured and raised and birthed and uh, you know was a creature of Judaism and the Jewish law until he uh, had the road to Damascus and, and and became the one to take Christianity to the Gentiles. And so when he is wrestling with what now is the is the role of Judaism, he's really wrestling with his own past and with what is the deepest and richest to him. Um, and the way I'm approaching this is, is, is to say that in order to understand Paul's view of the law, we have to understand first the role of the law within Judaism. And, and a little bit of this is review. You've, you've heard this before at different times, but I do think it's important to, to get at. Um, it, it's important to know that that what we as Christians have normally been taught about, first about Judaism and and particularly the law, L-A-W, writ large within Judaism, is that uh, is that it is a regulations of do a series of do's and don'ts from which we have been freed by Christ. Christ has come, therefore we don't have a religion of do's and don'ts. Um, the the trouble with that, and, and then that that sort of extends within Christian language to, um, you know, people, uh, the the church, the uh, argument being about about Christians versus people of other religions, about Christians versus non-believers, about Christians versus Jews, and about language that is at other places in Paul about a war of the flesh versus the spirit. Belief versus non-belief, sin versus sanctity that occurs within individual Christians. All of this gets gets tied up with with the question of of, of what do we as Christians believe about the law? And again, because in in our upbringing, so much of us think of the law as being do's and don'ts or regulations. Um, it's important to go back to something that, that I read from, from James Kugel, a Jewish scholar, about how rich the law 
or Torah was to Judaism. And and I remember being taught when I was studying Karl Barth in seminary that in order to really understand Paul and, and Karl Barth, when we come to the phrase law, the best way for us to translate that in a way that relates to us is religion. That it's that it because law implies you know specific do's and don'ts, whereas what what Paul is seeing in, in Judaism and in Torah is the whole structure of a way of being, a way of life that is good and coherent and has value that we would that we would that's more appropriately defined as religion. Um, and if you'll call if you'll recall from Kugel, uh, he described the law as a way that Jews have a living, vibrant connection with God. In the little little encounters of daily life between children and parents, customers and shopkeepers, beggars and almsgivers, natives and foreigners. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, set out precise forms of behavior that God had described. Do what it said and you were serving God. Fail to do so and you were committing sin. Within this law, there was a wide range of of types of law. What to do if you chanced upon a bird's nest in the road. Uh, What to do if you failed in replacing the roof of your house to provide a safety railing and the workman fell off because of it. Um, Kugel says there there were rules about vows to God that you might make in a moment of panic. What to do if you contracted a then common skin disease. There were rules about festivals and pilgrimages and fasting menstruation and seminal emissions, rules and rules and rules, until it seemed like there was no area of life in which the Torah, in which your religion, failed to touch. In doing each thing according to the way God had prescribed, Kugel says, a person could, as it were, turn all of life itself into an attempt, an outreach, a way of reaching God. Nothing was done for its own sake. Everything was done to serve God. And so without having to retreat to a monastery or to have a you know, mountaintop religious experience, one could live each minute in a state of holiness and sanctity, creating a living, breathing connection between one's little life on earth and the God in heaven. It is, a, it is a beautiful way of describing what anybody's religion would be. I mean, if, if you had this promise of, of everything that you do um, creating a living and vibrant connection with God, there's nothing more beautiful than that. Um, and so if we accept and understand this positive understanding of the law within Judaism we understand what Paul's view of the law was and therefore of what he was trying to say in these chapters in Romans. It it is so much deeper than now that Christ has come, we don't have to follow rules and regulations. And and that's pretty much the way um, 
Christians have tended to interpret it. Now that Christ has come, we don't have to follow ritual. Now that Christ has come, we don't have to, uh, you know, follow prescribed seasons. And it's it's just very richer than that. It's very it's much richer than that. And the richness has to do with how uh, how valuable in living the law was in Paul's own faith. Um, and that leads then to to the image that we used last week from from this scholar named Paul Meyer about the worm at the core of the apple, which somebody came up to me before class and said that really is is a rich image. And again, this is from an essay that he wrote. He was a professor of religion at the University of North Carolina who passed away a few years ago, I think in his 80s. But he wrote this wonderful long essay on the book of Romans. And it was titled The Worm at the Core of the Apple, but neither worm nor apple appear in the essay. But it's an image of saying that... uh, that there there is nothing more beautiful and succulent and delicious as a bright red shiny watery apple i mean you can you can have hunger slaked by it you can have thirst slaked by it and it's just a beautiful beautiful thing um, but not every apple but many apples have a little worm at the core which not only corrupts your experience of it, but actually corrupts the apple and can make you sick if you eat it, and depending on what kind of worm it is and depending on what your constitution is. And and what Meyer's whole belief about Paul's understanding of the law is that the law was this utterly beautiful thing, as Kugel has described, but that Sin, this power of sin that is outside of the law and is not us as humans, but it, but it's a power in and of itself, has the power to take something that is as beautiful as an apple and corrupt it through a tiny little worm. And, and essentially what, what he says that Paul says is that, um, that it is the power of sin as a force outside of, of human nature that takes the law, the Torah, Judaism, and by extension, we would say religion of, of any good form and turns it into something that that's more corrupt. Um, and it, if you... Uh, so I'm at, I don't know if, let me just read this. It's at, it's at the top of page three for me, but I'm not sure how much you how much I've shared with you on this or is in your handout. Um, so for Paul, the problem is what the power of sin does to the law, even when humans follow and embody it well. Uh, Paul will go on to say that there are two forces that are larger than any one human being or humanity in general. One is the power of sin, and the other is the power of God. Because of this opposition, God versus sin, in the battlefield of the law, it is best when we hear the phrase law that we interpret it as religion. It is the power of God versus the power of sin. And the very place the battle occurs is in faith, belief in God, being Christian, being religious, doing the right thing, following the law. And 
once we realize this, we we see the true power of Paul's argument. And I guess what I would, I mean, one of the ways I would go back to this is is one of the one of the stories that is that's most meaningful to me um, is all the way back in the Old Testament where you know one a couple of things is is that in the Genesis story when the woman partakes of the forbidden fruit the the verse in Genesis I think it's three seven or uh, outlines her motivation and the motivation that it says is when she saw that the fruit was good for food was beautiful to the eyes and was desired to make one wise she partook of it and ate and contrary to our sort of common Christian history about Eve you know giving into her lower nature, doing something evil, it was actually reaching for something that was good because it's beauty, uh, wisdom, and what was the third one? Food. And food, yeah. I mean, those three things, all of which are goods in and of themselves. But the power of, you know, Satan, the sin, the tempter was... To corrupt that reach for something good, in, you know, became something became something worse. Um, another way that that's played out in Genesis is uh, again when Cain kills Abel. What are they arguing over? Yes, whose offering to God is superior? Yeah, Abel brings his offering and God accepts it. Cain brings his offering and God doesn't accept it. Does it say why? It doesn't. It doesn't in the text. Now, people try to read in the text that, well, Cain was, you know, a hothead and jealous and all that. But, but But the raw reading of the text, they each brought the fruit of their hands, offered it to God. God had regard for Cain's offering, but he didn't for for Abel's offering. I mean, for Abel's offering, but not for Cain. And what that led to, just a second way, what that led to, as as I heard somebody say one time, is that the first um, real really act of violence was Cain killing Abel, which was domestic violence. It was a fratricide. And to use our terms, it occurred in an argument over whose offering to God was superior. It, atur- it occurred at the altar in church. And it, it's one of the texts I use to, to just say, uh, you know, perhaps the most intense wars in human history are wars over religion, wars over God. And, and we're nuts to think they're going to go away. I mean, they've been with us forever. You know, but, but you look back. I mean, we didn't have to deal with this a lot until, until really the last 20 years with the rise of, of a religious form of terrorism or a terrorism that was rooted in religion or used religion. But, you know, you, you look back to the Middle Ages and the Crusades. I mean, that, I mean, history is littered 
with blood spilled in the name of God and in the name of religion. And and the what Paul would say is it's not the name of God that's corrupt. It's not religion that's corrupt. It's not the instinct to worship God that's corrupt. It is the power of evil to take something that is good and turn it into something that's that's deadly. Uh, uh, I don't think they were a Cain and Abel. Um, I don't know. I don't. You think so or don't? No. I think they're an. I think they're one of the rare cases of not twins. <laughs> I mean, they're brothers, but not twins. So. Yeah. The choice. Yeah. And, and it's and what you're doing is I don't want to blame I'm just holding you up as an example. Uh we as human beings need a rational answer as to why God chose that offering. And it doesn't exist in the text. And it's amazing how many people read that text and immediately say, Oh, well, that's the reason, that's the reason, that's the reason. It's not in the text. It's a it's a mystery. Makes me think of it does, yes. Y'all had too much Calvin today, you know. So now Wayne, yeah. Yeah. There might be, but I still think that's you trying to read something into the text, <laughs> so, which is our human tendency, you know. Yeah. And you look at Abel, and you see in Hebrews later that Christ's sacrifice is far better than the sacrifice of Abel. Right. That's the way he wrote it, yes. Yeah, so that's what I was bringing Yeah. You're not wrong. You're just ruining my storyline. So, <laughs> Cain is the what is the elder one? Yeah, but they're not twins. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 yeah. Go ahead. I guess my question is: Was the worm in the original apple? Oh, uh, was the, yeah. What's the source of the worm? Is your is your question? Where did that feisty little worm come from? In Paul's right. Um, yeah, Wayne. Listen, we got a we got a great question here because I'm going to give an answer for it. Okay, <laughs> that's why it's a great question. Uh, he asked, "Is was the worm in the original apple?" Um, I I don't think Myers is trying to be fancy and tie it to the to the Genesis story, but in Paul's um, cosmology, his understanding of the universe. Um, there is the power of God and there is the power of evil that are battling. There's, Paul's a little bit Manichaean in that regard. Um, and what he says, among other things, is that, that religion, the law, the good, the apple, 
is the battlefield. And you know, if if you look at this is all mythological, but it's explanatory in the way myths do. If you look at Genesis, um, you know, the snake is just depicted as small and crafty, as wise in its own way. I mean, like a worm is. And so for, in Paul's understanding, and I certainly agree with this, for sin to be powerful, it does not have to look powerful. It can be a worm. I mean, and you think of the power of evil to undo something, especially to corrupt something that's good. It's usually the little worm, you know, the, the snake. I mean, it's something that, that reverses it. Yeah, Ted. So if the law is religion, right? It's analogous to religion. Yeah. What are, do we call those 635 rules that are in the Torah that well, behavior? Well, those are, those are a real part of of the Jewish religion, but but Kugel would say that the beauty of those is that they, like you said, if you follow them, almost all of your life can become a daily uh, way of reaching God. See that that's the way. That's why he said, you know, if you build a house railing, and I mean, if you follow them all, because they cover so much. I mean, they don't cover everything, but they cover a lot of things. And I think the, I think in that passage. One of the things that's most meaningful to me is when he says, basically, without leaving for a monastery, without withdrawing from a monastery or having a mountaintop religious experience, you can have a living, vibrant connection with God through living according to those laws. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. That's great. I don't quite get whether Paul was saying, we don't need to do this anymore. We don't need to elevate our ordinary experience. We don't need to find God everywhere. I I don't don't quite understand. I I think to myself, why would you you want to do that? Why would you want to turn your back on that? Yeah, yeah. that, that's that's interesting. I, mean, I think what you've said is really beautiful, in in terms of just elevating the ordinary, in in a in a. If we did a better job of preaching and teaching about communion, we would say the same thing: that it's ordinary bread and ordinary wine that is being converted into something that that's holy. I mean, that's really beautiful. Um, And I and I think I don't think Paul is trying to throw out his past. I, I think he's trying to um, I think what I think what Paul is trying to do, and I'm I mean this is Larry right now, just trying to respond to your question, is that I do believe, like you all probably heard from Patrick today about Calvin that 
that Paul has a really deep sense of the fall and of evil and of and of human you know bleakness and and the form that that takes for Paul is the corrupting of something that's good the corrupting of the law so what he would say is that instinct to elevate or the practice of elevating has become because of the power of sin uh, corrupted evil and it's not it's not the law itself. I mean, he says that over and over and over. It's not the law itself. It's what the power of sin does to the law. Okay? So let me, there's a lot of hands, and I want to take them in order. You were first. Or, I, just something quick. I, I read it as if you follow the law, but if that's all you do, you can be corrupted. And right. It's written by man, which is easily corrupted. Um, so the way I read it was Paul was saying, that in itself is not necessarily bad, but you need more. Yes. You need more than just well, the law. Y- yes. In some, yes. Now, Dana, and well, then what, I, Nate? Kurt, I, I agree, and I, I think I was wanting to make that point at some point with the flagpole issue, but I think the, the concept that I'm hearing is that, well, I'm doing these six things, and I'm feeling good about this, uplifting my daily life, and somebody else is saying, Oh, you know, you were a little slow on that, or you were a little off on that. So it's like corrupting, you know, turning against yeah. me. Sort of what we do in raising children. Right. I mean, oh, you didn't get an A+. Plus. <laughs> in a weird way. I mean, that not in a weird way, but that happens all the time. Gosh, Let, I had just gotten over that, Larry. <laughs> what? <laughs> Let me go to Judith's point. Look at 711. Of all things, speaking of non-kosher food, look at 7-Eleven. This just affirms what what I was trying to say to Judith. This is Paul speaking in chapter 7, verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, in the law, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. It's good, it's beautiful, it's elevated. And the commandment is holy and just and good. It is what sin does with the law, what the power of sin does with the law, that is that is what's evil. It's not the law itself. And, and that's true whether the law is a wonderful kosher practice that you might not even understand or whether it's something that we might... You know that Karl Barth really brought to to this discussion, and that is the whole human religious instinct, the whole structure and purpose of religion and of worship and of church and of our attraction to it is also something, as we have deeply seen in the last 25 years, can be corrupted. So Nate, you had your hand up, or are you? Um, have we moved on? I mean, we haven't moved on. Okay. We never move on. I don't think my, my, my point would really be anything special because we've already said it. But, okay. Um, it's more like the fear of someone using the law to bludgeon you. Yeah, that would be a corruption of the law. Um, because you know, you know my brother Brian. Uh, he is, <laughs> so he is now a deacon in his church. And so he constantly just says, I'm a deacon, so I know. Yeah. It shuts off all conversation. Yeah. And it's it's a perfect example of you're you're a Pharisee, 
Yeah. Yeah. You you allowed this image of yourself to corrupt yeah. your faith, to corrupt the law, to shut off all conversation. It's just a power struggle. Yeah. Which is the exact. It's an abuse or a misuse of religion. Catherine, some wisdom. Not that Nate wasn't, but. That part of Paul, right. yeah. And how often I have heard about, you know, women not speaking in church. And just, it just makes me think, like, how corrupted this has become, yeah. our word has become, in the same way, but then in the same way that the law could be corrupted. Yeah, that's great. So the reason I teach these classes are two. One is to rescue Paul, which I've obviously done with Catherine. <laughs> And two is to rescue the Old Testament, which is always, <laughs> that's a little harder task sometimes with people, but, uh, or just to get people to, to not see the God of the Old Testament solely in judgmental terms as if the God in the New Testament doesn't have occasional outbursts as well. Uh, so anyway, um, I, I, I guess I would just expand it. Let me, since I've, I've introduced Bart, let me just, just say what, let me just expand that a bit. Uh, what Karl Barth reacted against was what was called 19th century Protestant liberalism. And 19th century Protestant liberalism was basically a belief that, um, that through education and religious nurture, individuals could be restored to their original good so that you could educate people, you know, and you could, and, and the religious version of that is, is if you converted them all to Christianity, if you sort of nurtured this internal sense, what, what Schleiermacher called the, the feeling of absolute dependence, you could reform the world and, and bring progress. Um, and because that was shattered by World War One, but but it also a, a lot of the people, as you know, that were saying that were, uh, you know, their views on race and their views on science were were horrible. I mean, it, it's you know we look back on them and it's such a mixed bag. Um, but but it's Bart who who sort of rediscovered the power of sin and evil or original sin. And, and, you know, once again reminded Christianity that, that any t- time we start thinking that we can make that much progress, watch out. And, and that's, you know, that's essentially why he would say substitute law for religion. Um, I think, you know, again, just to, to not beat a dead horse, but if you, 
you, you know, you, obviously we have seen in you know the corruption. I mean, your example of of your brother is is just but one instance of just how in the last 20 or 25 years. I mean, we have seen with with terrorism and the use of religion for that. Uh, you know, is horrible, and just the politicization. However, you you say that. You know, I can never get that word out because it's too long. It's kind of like Deuteronomistic, but just the the division of Christianity in political camps and sort of the no no conversation across those lines, and and the the use of of faith in our political parties as well as the the whole. You know, now two rounds of scandal in the Catholic Church, you know, have just caused all of us to rediscover how corrupted religion can become in our day and time in a, in a graphic way, in a graphic and in graphic and tragic ways. And I think in a in a big picture sense that that's really consistent with what's part with what part is with what Paul is saying. The other thing I would say about it, which I make a little note of in here, is, you know, in the past 10 years or so, there's been a lot of publicity, kind of less recently, on, on the new atheism or the, or the criticism of Christianity from Dawkins and Christopher Hutchins and uh, the late Christopher Hutchins and, to some extent, uh, there's another guy in there, but... I, but uh, but essentially where, and I haven't read their books, I follow it a little bit, but a big part of their criticism is saying that religion um, has, has been a negative force in history. That it's, you know, it's responsible for a lot of death and killing and slavery and bloodshed and all that throughout history. And, some, and sometimes that's a criticism of Christianity. Sometimes it's larger than that. What, what I have, the, the response that I've always wanted to make to them, which again, Karl Barth was terrific at saying, is that uh, wise Christians who have read Paul have always known that religion can become a force for evil can do evil in the world. And it's it's getting to the point where you allow your understanding of God and of Christ to critique religion rather than be brought into it. That's that's so important. That commandment that tells you to murder people if they don't agree with you. Right. I mean right. it's not religion. It's not in here. It's not in it's not anywhere. The worm, not the yeah, apple. Yeah, right, right. So I always try to defend the apple and say, but but acknowledge that everything they're saying is historically true. I mean, I, you know, I've never been, I, I've never had anything in my upbringing that would sort of given give me much affinity with with Catholicism. I just was a kid that was raised in a kind of simple Presbyterian church in a simple culture and Catholic were the people that caused us to have to eat those got off of fish sticks on Friday, you know, and that's sort of all I, I knew about it in a simple world. But I but uh there there are times when I've been in Roman Catholic churches, including, you know, the recent trip to Israel, when I can pause for a minute and really see the beauty of that worship. I can really see its appeal to people. It's you know what it does. 
and there's something beautiful. Kurt, I know you're, this is speaking of your past, but I mean, there's, there's a solemnity, there's a solemnity to, to it. And it's, and, you know, you go anywhere in the world and it's sort of the same ritual. And, and the times I've been in, in the Middle East and you just realize that, that it truly cuts across economic and national and racial boundaries. I mean, you see, you know, peasants in there literally worshiping and you see, the town friar, you know, the town bankers worshiping. I mean, there's a beauty to that, uh, and and certainly there is much Catholic moral thinking and theological thinking that 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 is that is really good and really sound. And my New Testament professor was Catholic, Ray Brown. I mean, there's there's a lot I owe to Catholicism, but it's also you know when you just see the ugliness of what has happened in that church the last 25 years. I mean, the, you know, the horror of it and, and to have it repeated. I mean, we discovered it in the mid-90s and now it's back up again and it seems like every time it comes forward it's just, you know, more depressing and angering. And yet, what it is is corrupting something that's beautiful at its heart, you know, in a way. So... Thank you. We are, of course, the apple, and there's no worm in us. <laughs> so, let's see. You've been on this session for two months. You just wait. You'll see those worms all over the place here. So, um, so, uh, so let me. Yes. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. But that but you're saying sin is really something very different than that. Yes. Um certainly one of the definitions of sin in in traditional theology that I think probably comes from Augustine or Aquinas is it's it's called uh one of them is called harmatia in Latin, which is missing the mark. You know, that's throwing the dart at that picture and it goes over there. another is just simply what you've said. It's disobeying the law you know it's doing the wrong thing um, what Paul has is what I think is a much deeper vision of sin and that is that it is hello can you borrow it depends on what you're going to do with it <laughs> I know <laughs> you but, so what, what, yeah, what kind of time frame? What kind of time frame do we need to put Dean on? <laughs> Just bring it back. All right, thank you. So, Whitney's out of town. This is the guy. It's the great middle school youth 
leader and has been for four or five years, Dean Kern. I mean, he's terrific with youth. So where were we? Uh, that's good. Uh, yeah, Paul's, the, you know, again, in throughout Romans and throughout his writing, uh, he just has a concept of sin as being a force that is independent of, of human nature. And it's a... You know, it's the power of good and the power of sin, and, and it's a battle. And that's a little bit like Manichaeism, but it's 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 certainly something that that I that I prefer. And that um, we're going to get to how Christ is the answer to that in a little bit. But um, let me let me just read. Let me close this off, and then we'll then we'll take our break. Uh, I. I quoted this last week from Spoon River Anthology, and I realize it's actually in this lesson. But this is, a, this is an example of how something that is good, which is in the person of Constance Haightley, her adoption of her nieces, is corrupted by her attitude. Okay, and it's just a wonderful, I love Spoon River Anthology, but this one's lover. It's, this is Constance Haightley, notice the name, speaking from the grave to all the good citizens of Spoon River, Illinois. You praise my self-sacrifice, Spoon River, in rearing Irene and Mary, orphans of my older sister. And you censure Irene and Mary for their contempt of me, for their ingratitude towards me. But praise not my self-sacrifice and censure not their contempt. I reared them, I cared for them, true enough. But I poisoned my benefactions with constant reminders of their dependence. In other words, I poisoned them by constantly reminding them you better remember who's providing that food for your table. You better remember who's taking you in. You better remember who's, you know. It's just a, it's a wonderful story of how something that is good and beautiful is corrupted by a power that's larger than ourselves. And it leads us to say, and then we'll take the break, that uh, at, at the end of chapter It's seven and eight. What? I'll just I'll just read chapter eight and then we'll end. I mean I'll read this from chapter eight because essentially what Paul says is that the power of sin is so great and it's corrupting of the law and religion and everything else it touches that it is only the death and resurrection of Christ that is equally powerful to overcome it. And so that's that's chapter eight. There is thou, there is therefore, this is, yeah, this is 8-1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And again, the law of sin and death is not the Torah. It's not the religious law. It's the power of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, so that the Torah might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then... uh, Down in 31, 31 to 38. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not with him also give us everything? Who will bring any charge against God? God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, and who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or, or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then this is the key sentence. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, It is, again, that's a ringing affirmation of the power of God that overcomes the power of evil and the power of sin to corrupt. Thank you, Dean. Uh, and uh, it, it really is a battle in Paul's eyes, and the, and the battlefield is often not only the human heart, but how the human heart worships, serves, appropriates, understands God uh, through religion. All right? Take a break. Yeah. I appreciate you all being so engaged today. This is going better than I feared that it might. Nine. Y'all are carrying the day, so. I want to make a couple of of uh, announcements as we go forward. I'm neglected to announce, or want to announce that, again that we've got the Peter Inns event next Sunday night, and it starts at seven. We're going to end at six. Uh, certainly, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, we can do pizza. There's. A, uh, well, we could, but there's a lot of desserts. I mean, you know, it's, uh, but anyway, I hadn't thought of that. If we, if we wanted to get pizza, would, how many people would like pizza? Just raise your hand. Let's get a count. <laughs> 10 or 12, 8 or 10. Yeah, okay, we can, we can, is there somebody that will just volunteer to, to have it delivered here? Or to pick it up or something to take care of that this week? Yeah. Ted, thank you. Thank you. How many cans did we have? How many what? Hands. It looks like we had seven or eight. It'll, it'll probably grow once you actually bring it in the room. <laughs> so just do that. We'll, we'll chip in and cover it. I mean. This is for the people that follow the law versus don't follow the law. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So where can you get gluten free? Somebody say gluten free pizza. Delray pizza has it. Delray You don't want gluten free. What? Get enough gluten free. Yeah. Yeah. So you. How many gluten frees? Okay. Yeah. 
least two. So I know what they want on their pizza. It's always it's always complicated, yeah. What? But that's all right. Yeah, just just do that. We'll we'll do that next week. So, but it really is good. Uh, secondly, I wanted to do a couple of things. Uh, Richard, the big guy at the back table, is is pretty much quarantining himself these days, but just because he's so susceptible to to disease, he's not. I mean, nothing bad is going on with him, but he's he's not going to come back out until this passes. So we probably won't see him the rest of the year. So I mean, the rest of this class. And Richard, the the big guy in the back, he's 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 got so many health issues, yeah, in the wheelchair that he just can't can't come out except to go to the doctor and, and stuff like this. So anyway, um, so what I want to what I want to talk to now is is we've set this up. So now in in nine to eleven is where Paul spends time really wrestling with with the role of, of Judaism in Christianity, saying, you know, what now happens? And I want to approach this with with a couple of things. One is I want you to look at at, cha- at Romans 10, Chapter 4. Uh, and I've put a lot of material down in here on this, but it's, it's a really neat word study. And it has to do with... Uh, this is the way the verse reads, Romans 10, chapter 4. Yeah, Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Yeah, so this is the way it reads in our translation, the NRSV. For Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. The, the key word here is the end. Um, there is a a traditional well, and and the different the, the two different meanings to the word end um, that that are argued in theology is to say does end mean that Christ is the annulment or termination or abolishing of the law. Or does end mean that Christ is the fulfillment of the law? End in the sense of a goal that has been reached. Um, and, and to just show you how English translations work and don't work, uh, I, I certainly argue and, and believe that uh, that that in Christian belief, Christ is the fulfillment of the law, not the abolition of the law. So it's it, what that means is that Christ is taking everything about Judaism and and ramping it up, fulfilling it. I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That it, that it's a that it's a not only an affirmation, but an affirmation that brings it into Himself and 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 lifts it to a new level. Uh, but, it, but listen to these two translations. I think this is probably in your notes. Uh, the, the traditional view is that, or a traditional view is that Christ abolishes the law, that Christ terminates the law, that the law doesn't count now. And, and if you have that view, it, it's understandable why as a Christian you wouldn't pay any attention to Judaism or why you'd think the Old Testament is inferior or why you would just you know, say, well, you know, Jesus has come. We don't have to pay attention attention to that. 
but but two translations that would express this traditional view. One is the uh, NEB, which is the New English Bible, and that's a really popular. It is a translation, not as opposed to a paraphrase, and it's been a popular, widely used Bible uh, in Protestantism, you know, for about 25 years or so. It translates this verse, "For Christ ends the law." And brings righteousness for everyone who has faith. Christ ends the law. And the Jerusalem Bible, which is the Catholic Bible, but now the law has come to an end with Christ. And everyone who has faith may be justified. Do you you see what that's saying? I mean, it is saying that the law, the Torah, the Old Testament has been ended with Christ, has been abolished. Compare that again with the Revised Standard Version, which is what uh, we had until about 20 years ago. For Christ is the end of the law that everyone who has faith may be justified, or the New Revised Standard, which is really the same thing. For Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Uh, And then C.K. Barrett, who's a New Testament scholar, translates this for Christ by realizing righteousness for every believer proves to be the end of the law the termination of the fulfillment of the law and and essentially I you know I believe that that's uh, that's Paul's view and there are a couple of footnotes one in in ours and then one in the Harper study Bible which which some of you have that that really say even even to a greater extent that that end can can sort of mean both senses here in an even richer way. Um, the, the note in your Bible, the New Interpreter Study Bible, reads, the meaning of end can mean completion or termination. That is, Christ completes and fulfills the law, or it can mean Christ annuls and dispenses with the law. In some ways, both, both senses appear to be combined in 10.4. The law leads inevitably to Christ. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to the disciplinarian. Um, And righteousness in Christ ends all other attempted means of justification, including the law. This this is one way of saying, again, using what we did of Kugel earlier, that... uh, That certainly Christians believe that with that with the coming of Christ, we have that accessibility of of elevating and making every moment holy, making making every activity something that's service to God, elevating elevating everything, every building. What? I did. Yeah, I grabbed her words. Yeah, I grabbed her words. Yeah. Yeah, because they're better than mine. It's called plagiarism. I do it all the time. It's holy plagiarism, holy theft. Um, well, it's, it's, a, it's a valid point because if, if it's through the law, you're taking, you, it shows you how to take every day and elevate it to God. But now Christ is the goal, so you live every moment according to that goal. Right. Or if it becomes corrupted. Yeah. I mean. It 
So if, if, if you if you miss the goal or if you misuse the goal. Yeah. yeah. So if you're if you're living every day in Christ with Christ for Christ, um, then you're you're on this journey. The journey. Yes. Yes. Right. 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 Which is a pretty strong affirmation of the law. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's a that's a great contrast. You know, not one iota, not one dot. But he was a Jew. But he was Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it, it's just, and and again, I want to again, I'm giving you. You know my opinion, and that opinion's been honed here over 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 many years. But there is something in Christianity called successionism, not secessionism. There's that too, but but successionism is basically a, a Christian belief that that the church has replaced the Jews as the people of God, that Christ has come and you know the law has been abolished, and that that now all the action is with is within Christianity. And and Corinthians, what? Corinthians one, chapter ten, verse thirty-one. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of yeah, God. Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's very. That goes back. That backtracks, but that's good. Yeah. So what I want to say is that 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 I believe, and and I think Paul also believes. By the way, that uh, that secessionism is is not a correct theology. That that we um, and, and sometimes in Sunday school I don't like this either. But you know sometimes we used to say that Pentecost was the birthday of the church. That's a way of letting kids know that hey we can it's May and we can have balloons and you know the spirit's been given to the church and the church has been born. That, there's really a, a subtle secessionism about that that I don't like because the church was not born at Pentecost. The church was born with the creation of Abraham and Sarah. We haven't we haven't succeeded them. We are just you know part of them. We've been grafted onto that. So. The olive. Yes. Yeah. Right, and that's in that's somewhere nine to eleven. Chapter eleven. Yeah, and and what he is doing in nine and eleven, I think, and and it's it's almost too complicated to to, to walk through. Um, is that he? Paul is very strong on saying that the promise of God to the people of Israel has not been revoked and that it you know that they live under and and are loved by God under the under a covenant and and then with Christ it's a new covenant it's a different covenant but it doesn't succeed or replace the old covenant and so in our tradition uh, in, in this kind of Presbyterianism and this kind of theology, we don't believe it's our job to try to convert Jews or try to 
you know, we, we really live alongside them as partners, as two incantations of the same God and, and the same prom, you know, the same promise, and all part of the same people. Uh, again, we just, you know, we we focus on our, on our primary relationship with God is through is through Christ, and and that's not true of of Jews, but we don't say that 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 that's revoked then. Uh, and and that that we believe Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish law, but it doesn't abolish the law. And so in you know when you're when you're uh, depending on what Christian groups you you're with, there are a fair number of Christians who are very supportive of Israel because they basically believe that it is that it will be the the conversion of Israel that brings about the Messiah, and 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 those groups are really supportive of Israel politically, but it's it, it's on the assumption that they will all be converted, uh, and and that's not, I mean I'm pretty supportive of Israel, but it's for for different reasons than than that. It's not with that theology, and and part of what happens in the in the debates and denominations over over Israel is 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 I think some some fairly blatant secessionism or creeping secessionism that that I don't appreciate, uh, and and it's why you know I gave the warning when we were going to the Garden Tomb that that the that the people of the Garden Tomb it really was mild this year but the two previous years I mean the, there that was a 19th century. Uh, Wealthy person that, that created that site genuinely believes that that's that's you know at or near where Christ was born and probably at or near where he was crucified, but it, but it's really an explicitly Christian-run tomb and they usually get the mic when they've got you there and just try to convert. I mean, and there and and last time it was really last time we sent this message ahead and the guy said, I know the guy that's doing it, he's head of it. I've told him this is an interfaith group. Please don't try to be heavy handed. Man, he just went at it. This is really mild this time. But it but it is out of the it it is out of a genuine Christian belief that you know, that it's the job of Christians to try to convert everyone to, to Christianity. And that's very gracious in his comments about that guy too. Oh, was he? Yeah. Good. Yeah, this that was at the at the church, the nativity. I'm talking about the garden tomb. Yeah, he yeah, the guy at the nativity was was. But anyway. Um, that was there. That was the church, the nativity. Yeah. Already trying to Yeah, yeah, but they get a lot of interfaith groups. But but anyway, it's uh. It, it's just a very, you know, that's why we have this respectful relationship, and it, it is it is a grafted onto the olive olive tree. So uh, it's not that I wouldn't accept somebody who is Jewish that wanted to join the church, but I, I <laughs> I'd be I'd probably make it harder, you know, than your ordinary. If you're Catholic, come on in. <laughs> you know, so. But so, but anyway, it's it's a very much two parts of the of the same thing. So where does that come from? Let's just go back to Meyer a little bit, and uh, I'll try to flesh this out with something other than Larry. Um, Paul Meyer says that Paul gives no hint whatsoever 
that in Israel's past, the Torah, the law, was identified mistakenly demonic of origin or corrupted in its transition. There's no suggestion, he says in Paul, that Israel's knowledge of God was unreal or was diverted into idolatry or worship of false gods. There's no indication that Israel's zeal was half-hearted or cold or ingenuine. Yet in spite of all that, Meyer says Paul believes there is a Torah given and pursued but not reached, a knowledge of God aborted in non-recognition, a zeal for God that is turned into disobedience. Thus we find ourselves back at Romans 7, at the heart of God's own experience, at the heart of Paul's only experience of God's Torah. There's a, tr- there's a trans- transcendent capacity for sin to pervert his deepest commitment to sin. Sin seizing an opportunity in the commandment, I'm at 7, 8, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Um, there is a there's a place in Paul where he describes sin as like a lion waiting to lurch. And I'm not sure that it's Romans, but it's somewhere. But I remember when I was first a minister and back when in order to read the New York Times, you had to subscribe to it and have it delivered way pre-internet. There was a in the Sunday magazine, there was a really profound article that was written by a person who had who had been an alcoholic or was an alcoholic and had been in rehab. And he described alcoholism as being a beast or a lion that was constantly waiting outside the door to pounce. And that's really the image that Paul uses here of sin. You go to worship, you elevate the holy, and you've got the lion sitting outside waiting to corrupt it. And and that's where all of Paul's language of flesh and spirit and, uh, you know, Paul being weak and wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this bondage to sin and death? It all comes from that, from this sense that that sin is a power that is just waiting to infect in the bowels, in the heart and the soul, all of us. And, and unfortunately, in Christianity, that has been turned to sort of the flesh versus the spirit, and we tie it to the creation story, and we tie it to Plato, and the flesh becomes sex, and the spirit becomes prayer. And, and that's so... Uh, different than what Paul's really talking about. Paul's really talking about a a battle. Uh, And Paul very much takes sin sin, uh, seriously. Uh, Again, Meyer captures this well with the phrase, the power of sin to convert even Paul's delight in the the Torah into captivity. Uh, The holiness of God's Torah was so far beyond dispute for Paul that even this perverse use made of it by the power of sin to trick and kill had to be seen as serving the divine purpose, namely to manifest the incalculable dimensions of the power of sin uh, to be removed or to be overcome by the even stronger power 
of, of God in Christ. Uh, the uh, Paul sees a difference between. I mean, yeah, there's a difference for Meyer between Paul and his fellow Jews in relationship to Christ. In Romans 7, speaking personally and for himself, Paul can thank God for a deliverance that he has found in Jesus Christ. In Romans 10 to 11, speaking in solidarity with Israel, his thought can only come to rest in the future of God's irrevocable calling. In other words, in 7, Paul is saying, I have come to know God through Christ. I'm thankful for this. In 10 and 11, he is saying, I am thankful that God's promise to the Jews has not been revoked. So it's a sort of an acknowledgement of, of somewhat two tracks, although that's two, not separate tracks. Uh, the difference does not impunge the impartiality of God who has treated all on the same terms and can be counted to do so in the future. The end result for those who are in Christ Jesus, 8, 1 and 2, God has done what the law could not do to bring about the fulfillment of the law's just requirement. A new obedience to God, a new submission to God's will, free of the hostility of the flesh that perverts obedience into securing a person's own righteousness. Paul does not yet say what the end result will be for Israel, but one can see that that too will be built by faith and by calling upon the Lord. In any event, the kind of righteousness which belongs to faith and to trust in the God of Abraham and which Paul now sees from his Christian perspective to have been God's intent all along will be for Israel as it is for himself. The Torah arrived at, the knowledge of God made authentic in recognition and thanksgiving, the performance of zeal that deserves the name of obedience and that and the not so obvious Jewish identity and circumvision that receives its praise and recognition from God and not from human beings so that even something like circumcision uh, which was such a big issue uh, in Paul's writing it is something that he would see as being legitimate and understood and welcomed by God for for Jews because that's the way the way the law is expressed, but is not being a necessary act for Christians. And so to summarize this, uh, this is my summary of Paul's teaching in Romans and the Jewish law and the Christian faith. Both the Jewish law and the Christian religion are good and beautiful, but both can be and are corrupted by the way we misuse them. The example being Constance Haley. The misuse of the law and religious faith is sin, the worm at the core of the apple. Such sin is too deeply embedded within us for us to free ourselves from it through education, moral development, or even intensifying our faith, attempting to become a better Christian. It is the death and resurrection of Christ, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, not our faith in Christ that frees Jews and Christians from their mutual misuse, corruption, slavery to the law and to religion. 
the death and resurrection fulfills God's promises to the Jews and to Christians as it fulfills the law without replacing it and without requiring Christians to live under it. Um, so that's that's sort of the best I can do for for Jewish Christian relations and or, or just for understanding where Judaism fits in. And I've got to say that you know just just one final note that occurs to me. There is in our society, and especially in a church like ours, uh, in a country like ours, there, like I said, we all became interested in Mormonism when Romney ran for president. Likewise, we all became interested in Islam when planes flew into the towers. You know, it's sort of like his, history makes us, oh, we better learn about that. And then that learning is often accompanied by a sort of Open liberal spirit to want to to want to accept and see what's good um, in, in other religions, and I really, on one level, really appreciate that you know about our church. So we always want we always get people wanting us to do courses in comparative religion. They want to learn about Hinduism and Buddhism and things that, unfortunately, I know very little about. Uh, up, apart from all of that. There is a special relationship between Christianity and Judaism that's different from just comparative religion. I mean, it's a different category because um, in many ways we are they and and you can't separate us. I mean, you, you can't, you cannot legitimately study Christianity without studying Judaism. Just like you can't really study Mormonism without studying Christianity, you just can't. You know, you you. It's like adopting somebody at age 35 and expecting to be able to raise them. No, I mean, we were, you know, we came out of Judaism, and so there is a special connection that that is different than certainly the, the connection we have with Eastern religions, which is virtually nil, and even and even with Islam because Islam. Came out of Judaism, uh, what about the year five or six hundred? You know, fifteen hundred years after Abraham and Sarah, and uh, and really developed its own way, and and didn't really come through uh, Christianity. So, with that, now you can talk at your tables. All right. So just this will be simple questions you can answer. Uh, have you ever experienced the power of sin using Christianity, or I would say, you know, using Judaism when Christianity was clearly at its worst? Have you ever experienced the power of sin using Christianity even when Christianity was at its best? That's the hard question. So think about those two. If you finish early, we'll let you go home early plant one extra tulip in the yard tonight since it'll be midnight before the sun goes down tonight <laughs> all right for good or for ill so talk about those two experiences oh you do it shows how much i know about gardening <laughs> thank you sandy <laughs> all right you can put them in a pot yeah